You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the transit zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the BFI people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. I pay respect to their elders. Well, the federal election draws closer. We can all sense generally and across the mediascape the political electoral processes, including partisan propaganda, intensifying. Here in the transit zone over the last few months, we've put a particular emphasis upon the historic phenomenon of a number of centre-right community-based independent candidates challenging incumbents in urban and regional rural, ostensibly blue-ribbon Liberal Party seats. Many of those candidates are on the ground campaigning right now, or perhaps community building would be a more accurate description at this stage. In one way or another, all these Voices for movements across Australia have drawn upon and continue to use the kitchen table conversation approach to activating and gathering authentic community insights into the key issues for those electorates and how they view an ideal democratic representative. Margot Kingston for The Transit Zone spoke to two women integral to the backstory of the role of kitchen table conversations to Australian electoral politics. Hello to Mary Crooks, 25 years Executive Director of the Victorian Women's Trust and Alana Johnson, founding member of Voices for Indi and now Chair of the Victorian Women's Trust. I've asked you two to come on because kitchen table conversations has become quite famous in Australia as the means by which the Voices for Indi found out what voters wanted in their politicians and what issues they wanted addressed. Mary, you produced a handbook last month, very practical. (laughs) I was very impressed about just how to go about this mysterious and, and wonderful process. So, What is the history of this kitchen table conversations process? It's a 25-year history, in fact, because when I first joined the Victorian Women's Trust as the Executive Director, the first major public initiative that I put up to the board in 1997 was to conduct the Purple Sage Project across Victoria. And that was the first time that I had the opportunity to design a kitchen table process of the sort that um, we're now talking about. In that instance, back then, we involved some 6,000 women and men around the state of Victoria. It was a totally unprecedented exercise. It was hugely powerful. It led on to a series of iterations around water and so on. So there's probably been a good dozen or so iterations that the Trust has worked on. So you ask about the history. It's got a quarter of a century history That's where all of the investment, the energy, the skill, the capability, all of it occurred quietly behind the scenes uh, within the Victorian Women's Trust. I might add what's really important historically is that we recognise that all of the Trust's endeavour in rolling out this model has been made possible because we always had a handful of really committed, passionate private donors ranging from Helen Hanbury, Dame Elizabeth Murdoch, 
members of the Cantor family, Joe Bayevsky. We always had wonderful people who shared our passion for local level engagement. They gave us the resources to be able to pilot and pioneer this model, which actually cost a lot of money in those days. It's not just a product that you go and get off the supermarket called Public Process. It's not top-down, we'll tell you what to think, or a ticker box survey. It's finding a way to encourage and gather a bottom-up approach where the leaders listen. Is there some feminist theory, second-wave feminist theory around this, Mary? Look, in a very practical, homespun way, yes, there is. But it hinges on an ethos of collaboration, of deep listening, of being honest with one another and respectful. I think women over centuries have had a preferred ethic to talk with one another, to listen to one another, to pay respect. The feminist basis is that it's about coming together and listening and talking and and dealing with vexed issues. The kitchen table process is not easy stuff about, you know, easy issues. We've shown that the process can handle very, very deep complexity when we did our project around water, for example, and we had thousands of people involved in our kitchen table process along with scientists, eminent scientists. So we cracked some very, very complex technical and scientific nuts as well as involving people at the grassroots. I think actually without getting too highbrow about it, Margot, It's feminism lies in women's preferred ethic, which I think is to cooperate and collaborate. But I also think that it's an antidote to the command and control kind of culture that we are saturated in across a patriarchal world. We're so used to authority being vested in leaders top down as distinct from recognising the power and the agency of ordinary folk all over the community. And one of the wonderful things that happened by demonstration of that too is that each time we've run the process, the overwhelming majority of table hosts or group leaders has been women. With Purple Sage, it was up around 87% of our group leaders were women, the same with our watermark. And what tends to happen is that women have the energy and the capacity to start this process. And they tend to bring the men in. And that's happened time and time again. It certainly happened in Indi, as Alana, I think, will attest. So Alana, you were one of the small group of people who gathered at, I think it was the Wangaratta Library in 2012, to think through what they could do about having an MP in Sophie Mirabella who was simply not representing the electorate. Now, I gather that you and Kathy McGowan, also a founding member of Voices for Indite, were involved in the Watermark project. Did that sort of lead you to think, hmm, we'll call in Mary and try and adapt this for a political grassroots process? Yes, well, I think, Margot, there was an obvious um, connection between what had been happening at the Women's Trust through the Purple Sage Project and our watermark and what we still needed to happen in Indi. Prior to 2013, as we all know, Indi was such a political backwater. It suffered from being one of the safest Liberal seats in the country. We felt ignored, as though people had no voice. They were all things that were common experience to so many people in so many areas of their life. And I think the connection to the Victorian Women's Trust is really that notion of empowerment. 
that so many people don't have a voice in what determines their lives. They know what it is to be silenced, to be put down, to be disrespected, to be less than other people. It happens because they don't have enough command of the English language or their level of education, their ethnicity, their gender, even their sense of safety in being able to speak out. There's so many reasons why people feel silenced and having no voice. So when we saw the sense of disillusionment and disempowerment and even such level of frustration and anger in Indi, it was just logical to look at the Women's Trust and what had been achieved in the Purple Sage Project and Watermark Australia. Alana, was there discussion in the group about whether, because I know there's sort of the, this tension in a lot of the voices for groups between some members, mainly men, wanting to say, let's go straight to candidate, and other members saying, look, we've actually got to do community engagement first. Yes, well, we certainly know about that tension, Margot, and we had it too. There is a sense that people skip straight to seeing what solutions and outcomes they want to achieve, and they just go hell for leather and design some process and make it happen, you know, with their fingers crossed. But there was awareness with so many of us in the group that if you get the process right, the outcomes actually look after themselves. And we knew this was a process that had to give people a way to, you know, claim, reclaim their rightful democratic voice. And that wasn't going to happen by just standing an independent candidate. That would not change at all how people perceive their connection to politics. All they would have was somebody else to vote for in a system that silenced them. The candidate might have been preferred, but it was never going to change fundamentally the relationship between their candidate and their member of parliament and the people. Let alone bringing volunteers in, because through the kitchen table conversation process, people get engaged, don't they, and get get interested in what might happen next and how they could help. I think that's one of the really central parts of the kitchen table conversation. You mentioned before it's a way of getting information about what people think of issues in order to be able to inform their representative. Well, that's just sort of like an outcome. The real process, it's not a form of consultation. It's actually a form of people coming together and feeling that there is a place for their voice. There's a lot of people out there, they're not the sort of people who would join public protests or write a letter to the editor or contact their MP or even join the Twitter jungle to have their voice heard. This kitchen table conversation process, it actually provides people a completely different means of taking political action because regardless of their personal circumstances, they're able to gather and listen and talk. Can you take me through this, Mary? I gather that you were asked to come up to Indi and to work out an adaptation of the process for this political information gathering. How did that work and what are the fundamentals of how a kitchen table conversation went in Indi? With Purple Sage and our watermark, we'd operated statewide, for example. In actual fact, Alana and Cathy, I think it was around October in 2012, they came down to meet, we sat around the table and they told me about Voices for Indi had just recently formed and what their objectives were. And their question was whether or not the Women's Trust model could be adapted and tailored to an electorate. I had listened hard and I said, I don't see why it can't. The logical follow-on was, well, would I be prepared to work with the group? And I said, I'd love to do that. 
I think I went up in November. What was interesting about that time is that back to the tension you were talking about, Margot, that the dozen or so people in the room, there was quite a palpable tension to me as an outsider that women in particular, as Alana said, felt very strongly about the need to engage community authentically and with great respect. And the blokes, as a general rule, despite their passion and enthusiasm, they were sort of tapping the table and rolling their eyes a little bit because they just wanted to to flesh out a candidate and go for it. I actually, as a third-party reference, came in and said that I didn't think they could have it both ways and that they needed to resolve this. And the best way of resolving it was to put all of their energies and capacity into designing a process across the electorate and then see during that process and beyond whether or not a candidate was also going to be an option. That was a turning point for the group and that's what happened. And I think the outcome of that was that I spent some time working closely with the group, uh, sort of training them up in a way on all of the elements of the model. And the thing is, Margot, that when you get a group of committed and capable people around the table, you, you don't need multiple degrees. You don't need to be high-functioning professionals to do this. It's not rocket science, but it has to be done properly and thoughtfully. I felt very confident after my first weeks of interaction with the group, they were going to be able to take it and run. You can always tell when people get it or when people are still struggling with the conceptual and skill basis to it. But this group got it and they ran with it. And after I worked with them for that couple of weeks, the next time I joined up with them was actually in April where they had run their 55 groups across the electorate with great enthusiasm and great and great response. So the next time we met in April, it was actually to process all of the output from those 55 groups. And I spent my time mainly showing the group how to do that and how to, how to present all of the output in accordance with the three principles that I put to them are absolutely fundamental. And that is, you must report back comprehensively. In other words, don't select out what you want to hear. The second principle is a clunky word I use called traceability, but it means that everybody who participated, everybody needs to have a sense that what what they said and what their group said has actually been taken account of. It's traceable. And the third principle is that if you come to distill what people said, then you have to do so with faithfulness and with rigour. And the group just went away then the next three weeks. There were a small group of women Alana, and Shaw, Di Shepherd, who had to do the absolute mundane work that people don't see being done. They did it with great facility and that's how they were able to report. So it was a, it was a wonderful collaboration between the group and myself and the trust. What it meant was that when Cathy did come out as the endorsed candidate, she had this extraordinary authentic platform from which to speak And so many candidates, I mean, apart from the fact that she was a hugely credentialed, probably one of the most credentialed candidates ever to actually enter Parliament, to be honest, which is damning with faint praise because there's an awful lot that throw their hat in the ring who don't have many credentials at all. What she had was this incredible platform of community voice. She knew it, she understood it, uh, she got it, uh, and she worked beautifully with it. I would just like to add on to those three points that Mary made. 
Kathy went forth not with a list of issues from a consultation that she could talk about. She actually went forth as the voice of the people. She knew that she was standing there expressing what people had said. And I think that made a huge difference because they heard themselves in Kathy's voice and they were ready to go with her. I think one of the most powerful things about kitchen table conversations, and it's Mary's notion of traceability, being listened to is quite a gift that people don't often have in their lives. And the notion of actually being listened to makes you feel worthwhile, makes you feel included. And so all of those things led to a huge hundreds of people wanting to step forward and be part of this voice that Kathy was now giving voice to. Mm. One of the things that struck me was that she was able to hone in on two issues that united the community whoever they voted for, and they were, could you fix the black spots and could you get a decent train (laughs) service to Indi so that young people can come home and that people can work from Indi? It nailed what everyone across the community wanted as basic things in, in their lives. So, Alana, I'd like to get to some practicalities here. Could you take us through how you organised a KTC and the questions you asked and the approach you took to getting the answers. The notion of how to, to organise the KTC was very informed by Mary and the projects that she had previously run. So with her advice and help, we designed what we called a host kit. And the next thing we did was go out to the community, to people in our networks, anyone that we knew and said, this is what a kitchen table conversation is. This is what we're trying to achieve. Would you gather a group of people around you anywhere you like and talk about issues that are really important to Indi, that we wanted to find some common ground where people could come together and look beyond themselves and actually have a place where they can consider the issues that were really important to the community. People step forward so readily. We had people who had traditional kitchen table conversations with afternoon teas and dinners, but we had people who met at mother's group and book group and picnics in the park and after sporting events and dinners at the pub. So many different forms of people deciding that this process belonged to them and they could actually conduct it in a way that worked for them and their network of people. With this host kit, it was a way of giving people some confidence and surety that this big ask of bringing people together to actually talk politics, not something that you would normally necessarily do in your life, felt safe and would have boundaries around it. So the host kit that Mary helped us design was really critical in giving the host confidence to set the rules and to actually have a process with questions that they could move through and that people could engage in. We said to them, don't just gather your family and friends. If you've got the courage, invite people who don't necessarily think like you. Invite people in your neighbourhood, people from other political persuasions, and people rose to the occasion. Um, In my local town, 
one of our very well-known Labor supporters held a kitchen table conversation and invited the Indi chair of the Liberal Party to his kitchen table conversation. We had people who really stepped up and really embraced this notion that we could actually create community conversation that was respectful, where people felt listened to, and that we could actually focus on what was important to Indi. The questions were set with a lot of help from Mary, because as you can imagine, this was critical. So we had three themes. One was around what about living in Indi people really appreciated. So it was a question that helped people find common ground in the first place, because we found so many things in common, particularly people talked about the landscape in northeast Victoria, they talked about the climate, they talked about all the outdoor activities we can do. There was a real sense of like, yeah, this is our place, we are in our place together. Coming into the kitchen table conversation, using something like that, helped with the next question, which was, what are the issues that you see of concern, both for Indi and at a broader perspective, a national perspective? So there was then room for people to actually talk about things that you know are really important to them. And the rules about listening to other people, not going trying to convince other people of your view, but actually trying to understand other people's views, that is pretty foreign to a lot of people who all they do is give their opinion. (laughs) So people were being asked to put their opinion to the side and actually make space to listen to eight or nine other people. Then we followed up with the last theme, which was around what makes a good political representative? What do you want? And some very, very strong and powerful things came through that, that really when Voices for Indi put the report together with Mary's assistance, made it so clear that people wanted another choice. They wanted a political representative that was actually going to adhere to the sort of things and values and connection to community that they felt was critical. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark. Margot Kingston is speaking with Mary Crooks and Alana Johnson from the Victorian Women's Trust about the history and the current role of kitchen table conversations within grassroots democracy. I was really interested, Mary, you actually did a, a kitchen table conversation for the Carlton Football Club, which was trying to get more input from women members and be more attractive to women. And you said, don't do a ticker box survey. You sit down, you leaders, and be the scribe and listen to the women. And big success. But it just strikes me that this handbook that you've produced, sure, it's critical for, for people trying to forge an identity for their seats and find a, an independent candidate if necessary. But it's actually useful in, in community groups, in, in all sorts of places. So, so tell me what this handbook delivers for people who are interested in the process. You know, quite rightly, uh, Indi became a beacon back then in 2013. But it would be a mistake to think that the kitchen table conversation process is about electoral engagement. Indi people made it work very effectively and lots of voices are doing the same thing since. The most important thing is that it is able to be adapted It's a community capacity we're talking about here and can be adapted to all sorts of scales and levels. I mean, our watermark, for example, 
was in technical and scientific terms was something very, very different from Indi. But the principles, the principles are what's important and they they are in common with any adaptation. I just want to pick up quickly on on a couple of points that Alana canvassed. One, of course, you see is about listening and, and I've always, always thought that listening is an attitude and not a methodology and, and I think you find a lot of people listen, inverted commas, but what they're doing is working on their next sentence. And people know that. People sense that. I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the, the other really important thing, and, and this is not simply confined you know, to women, but the kitchen table process, properly conceived, properly delivered in terms of the underpinning values, is a very safe space for everybody not just for women. It's very safe. When you go to a town hall gathering, if your politicians, your candidates are are presenting or whatever, it's not safe for most people to put their hand up and ask a question. And, you know, most people don't do it. And and so what the KTC does is provides a very a very unthreatening way of people able to engage and to participate. And it's no accident that when it's done properly, the most common sentiment that the organisers get back is thank you, thank you, thank you for the opportunity, thank you for treating me with civility and respect the way you have. You know, we're so used in our political culture to a really adversarial, divisive kind of combative ethos, which it's sort of drilled into us that this is how politics is played out. Well, you know, the sad reality is that we've been conditioned to think that's the only way you do politics and it doesn't have to be played out like that at all. It's quite possible to conduct a politics that's, which is much less combative. But the point I want to make here is that conflict across our communities is often more apparent than it's real. And so it's not hard, as Alana said, it's not hard to form some very, very powerful consensus across communities because it exists. It's oftentimes played up to be much more conflictual. It is absolutely almost possible in every situation to establish common ground and then to build on the common ground uh, and to embrace dissent. The question of Carlton, look, it was a lovely story because the Carlton Football Club, I was on their diversity committee to try and strengthen their appeal to women because, you know, it had a long tradition of being very, very blokey and corporate and wealthy and a culture that they thought they could buy success. So I had this diversity committee. They did run down the list of things they wanted to do for women, and one of them was that they would do a survey. And when it got my turn to make an input, I said, for God's sake, can we not survey the women? Get them in here. Get them into the George Harris room. Listen to them. And they were sort of at a bit of a loss. And I said, look, I know how to do this stuff. I will design you a kitchen table process for the Carlton Football Club, if you just give me the George Harris room, allow your female staff to become group hosts, table hosts and scribes, and we'll take it from there. And so I think it was about in 2015 or 16, it was an amazing day. 120 women flocked into that room, some with hijabs, some from the top end of town. They had this animated dialogue for two and a quarter hours about their club. And we did the, the same kind of report because Indi was 
The template I provided for Indi to report back on was breaking new ground in how to report. It was the first time I'd done that. The demands of presenting in three weeks back to an electorate called for a different template, and so I've modified and used that template since, as I did with Carlton. It was just an outstanding event that women were talking about for weeks and weeks afterwards. First time, the first time in the history of one of the most powerful AFL clubs, 140 years old, the first time they put 120 women in the room and listened to them. Yeah. It strikes me, Alana, too, that this Independence Day movement, as it sort of evolved in safe coalition seats, you can't really do it without a kitchen table conversation process because, first of all, you've got to break down the polarisation. Then you've got to find the common ground. Then people of all different stripes have got to work together. It's what makes it work in a way, isn't it? What makes it possible? I agree with you, Margot, but I think we're seeing quite a diversity of people's interpretations of how you get a community independent up. I think, you know, it's a really exciting time and people are doing it how they think will work in their electorates. It's experimental, isn't it? It's very experimental. But I think one of the fundamental things people can learn from Indi and the Kitchen Table Conversations is if you want to give people a new way of engaging in politics and not just vote for somebody different because you think they're better, but you actually want to deliver a new and preferable relationship between constituents and their political representative, then you need to engage the community. Yes. One of the things that's been clear for decades now is is a plummeting trust in democracy as a form of government and a distrust in our political class. Where do you see, Alana and Mary, this movement fitting in to a, a genuine attempt to reinvigorate our democracy? I might start, Margot, and share with you a little story. After the 2013 election, Voices for Indi invited Simon Longstaff to our electorate to talk about democracy and ethics. And one of the things that he said that day has stuck in our electorate for the past 10 years now when he explained to us that you don't have a government in power, which is what we all talk about, which party is in power. He said, Parties are only there and governments are only there because of your authority you give them. You, the people, have the power. So we talk in Indi about actually reclaiming our democracy so that we, the people, have the power and we, the people, have the voice. Yeah, and Margot, I would follow on by saying that when the Purple Sage Project, when we conceived of that in 96-97, that was largely in response to a democratically elected government in the Kennett era that was riding roughshod over the community at large, was privatising assets everywhere that weren't in fact government's assets to privatise. They'd been built by people, though the people's assets. And so in large part, Purple Sage, although our critics wanted to typecast us as some sort of labour front, which we weren't, but we were a democratic front in which we had detected a huge anguish across the community that the government that had been elected was not actually representing their interests, especially in regional Victoria. So the impetus for Purple Sage was in fact a desire to to claim a democratic voice and to find a process that enabled people to give voice mid-term and mid-election. And I think we've always, always assumed 
at the trust that the kitchen table model is fundamentally an important democratic cultural thing. I guess the difference is that we get brought up in this country to think that democracy is about voting at elections, which in part it is, but an important part of democracy is about people being able to give voice, to be heard, to influence policy, to be able to hold people to account for the non-delivery of policy. And I think the kitchen table conversation fits into that notion of building people's democratic appetite and capacity other other than an electoral voting thing that you turn up and do every few years. When I said that people say thank you to us when they've held a conversation, I think they say that because there are very few opportunities created in our democratic culture for people to be heard in the way we are able to allow people to be heard, apart from standing up in a public forum or writing letters to the paper or, worse still, anonymously giving voice across social media, it's not common for people to actually have a safe, constructive, productive opportunity to have their say. The kitchen table process captures that beautifully. One of the things that this movement sort of reminded me of is there's an old saying in Canberra that when things are stuffed, you bring in the woman. So they, you know, brought in Carmen Lawrence in WA and Joan Kerner in in Victoria. And it just sort of strikes me that maybe, you know, our democracy's in, in real trouble. There's no trust in it. That it's sort of appropriate that this sort of women's led movement has said, well, how about trying it our way? Is is there any sort of resonance of, of that in what you think? I think it comes back to a starting comment today, which is there is no doubt that an ethic of cooperation an ethic of collaboration anywhere across our society will invariably yield better outcomes than dog-eat-dog adversarial politics. So the kitchen table conversation is not a panacea, but it's such a good reflection of that idea of people actually being prepared to come together and to discuss and to thrash out and to maybe build something together. And, and sadly, that's what's going wrong with our two-party politics Uh, is they can't even do that internally, uh, let alone across the aisles. If I was a Prime Minister, I'd pick a cabinet that had people from the opposition parties because I'd pick a cabinet based on cooperation and collaboration and skill and capacity. So clearly I wouldn't last very long. I think the reason there's so much public distrust in our politics is because people have been pushed to the margins more and more, and it's no accident that the majority of candidates up until recently, the majority of people elected to our parliaments over the last couple of generations have been party apparatchiks. They've either done their time in electoral office, they've been a chief of staff or they've been a unionist or they've been climbing over someone else within the Liberal Party. There are very, very few farmers, there are very few doctors, there are hardly any teachers, there are hardly any plumbers, there are no electricians. So one of the reasons why politics is on the nose is that the ordinary person has been pushed to the margins in policy, in process, in opportunities to be heard and seen and valued. 
So I would just like to add on to that and say then after what Mary has said, it's no surprise to realise that the vast majority of community independent candidates are women. Women are putting up their hands across the country. And I think it is a true reflection of the fact that the major parties' pipeline to get elected has always discriminated against women. You know, we have some attempts now to open the pipeline and make it more possible for women to pass through it. But recognising as women and men go through the party pipeline, they're actually moulded by the party. And what comes out the other end is somebody who needs to conform to really what the party requires of them and the party line. And if you don't conform, we see what happens. You know, we saw what happened to Julia Banks. So there's a whole sort of operational system that's actually acting upon women to the point that you know, so many of us were disappointed to see women parliamentarians respond so poorly to Brittany Higgins. That's a product, not of them being women, but of their passage through and their moulding by yeah. the party pipeline. Could I just finish off by saying I'm just beyond thrilled that it's rural feminists, it's women who started women in agriculture, who've brought women into farming and the sector, who are actually leading the way for Australian democracy. There's something about living in a, in a region, in a big, diverse place that somehow allowed rural and regional feminists who, who are basically unreported to go, wow, how about this? I think there's a couple of things we could comment there, Margot. Um, <laughs> firstly, we could ask the question, has it not always been the way? I look at Mary Crooks there, who grew up in Portland, where Vida Goldstein lived, the greatest feminist leader we've ever had, the first woman who ever stood for parliament. I think rural women have always been outstanding in progress in Australia. And I think the fact that we've been working on the rural women's movement for 30 years, gosh, we learned a lot. We learned how to be savvy. We learned how to bring people together. We learned how to deal with the power structures that were against us. We learned how to form our own organisations and not expect the organisations that already existed to embrace us because they were never going to. There were so many lessons from the rural women's movement that really have informed what happened in Indi and what's happening now in other voices for electorates. If I could say one last thing, to have a, a regional group working in collaboration with a Melbourne group, which has funding, if that could be a model for ending the city-country divide, that would be an absolutely wonderful thing for Australia. I'd just like to thank you both very much and just say as a, a very, very old veteran political reporter that to see second-wave feminism produce this and to see basically a women's-led movement to reinvigorate our democracy and to actually insist that representative democracy involves genuine representation and dialogue. It's just so wonderful. So thank you very much for coming on. Pleasure, Margot. Thanks, Margot, and thanks, Alana. It's been very productive. Thank you. Our guests with Margot Kingston this time in the Transit Zone, Mary Crooks, Executive Director of the Victorian Women's Trust, and Alana Johnson, the Trust's Chair. I've included a link in the on-screen text for this podcast to the Trust's Kitchen Table Conversations, a guide for sustaining our democratic culture in digital form, or you can order a print copy to share around with your community group. If you'd like to email us at the Transit Zone, here is our email address, 
transitzonepod at gmail.com. We always welcome your comments, your questions, your ideas for new podcast episodes. transitzonepod at gmail.com. That's our email address. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit Zone.